with me and let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your uh, faithfulness, your work in our church these last 11 years. We thank you, Lord, for your grace being with us and for sustaining us. We thank you for those who are here and those who uh, used to be here. We thank you, Lord, that uh, whatever has come, that you have always been with us, that you have always shown yourself to be faithful. And that's why we love you. That's why we look to you as the one true God, the only God. As we just read in our responsive reading, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Father, you feel all things. You are all things to all of us who believe in you. We thank you, Lord, that in this passage um, that we just read that we see the purpose of church and ministry to edify the body of Christ to do the work of ministry to we all mature as a perfect man to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ that is why the church exists that we should no longer be children tossed back and forth by all the false doctrine and false trends that seem to sweep uh, modern American Christianity introduced by the trickery of men, the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Lord, you called us to grow up, to mature in all things into Christ who is the head of the church. That we all who are believers are joined and knit together and we supply each other with what is needed for the effective working, for the growing of the church where everyone does his or her part. Father, may we continue to see that as a church, that we're not here just to see everybody's faces and sing together and pray together and listen to the gospel being preached. That is, that is all well and good, but Lord, you've also called us to to serve one another and to carry the gospel work out into our homes, our places of employment, the public square. And Lord, we thank you for sustaining us and being able to do that. Lord, I also thank you for um, the partnerships that we were able to form as a church providentially that led to other great uh, partnerships uh, through your providential work. For those who helped us get started uh, with things that we needed, um, like uh, Mountain View Church, uh, when Brother Matt Nelson was there and had planted the church, the work they did in donating to us and donating things to us that we needed. And we're still good friends until this day. Still good friends with some of the elders there uh, that are still there and those who've left for the partnership with uh, Renovation Ministries and helping to feed families uh, during Thanksgiving for three years in a row and good partnerships came out of that and that's how I was able to meet uh, Bob, St. John and Carlton and Ryan and all the other brothers who've uh, helped mold me into 
uh, the pastor that I am and the man that I am and the husband that I am. I thank you, Lord, for bringing all the ones here who are here. We, we're, we're thankful for them. We love you for doing that for us. And But we continue to trust you to grow our church. It is you who builds your church, not trends, not fads, not watering down the gospel. Lord, it is you who builds your church. And I pray Christ continues to build his church here at the Living Church. Lord, I pray for all the faithful brethren this morning that they continue to persevere in pastoral ministry, uh, Bob and Carlton and uh, Phil and, and Anthony and Justin Holland and uh, Brother Curley and Cody Hale and other brothers that partner with us, that you persevere them, Lord, in pastoral ministry also. Father, we pray um, yesterday our country uh, commemorated the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. We pray, Lord, for the families, those almost 3,000 people who lost their lives. I'm sure there's still, some of them are still grieving. I, I pray that among them, that some are grieving with hope in the resurrection. But Lord, for those who don't know you, who still question why such a terrible thing would happen, Lord, I pray that the gospel is presented to them, that salvation through Christ is presented to them and that they receive the salvation that is found only in Christ. Lord, we pray also for um, our nation, our leaders. Father, that they turn from worshiping idols to worshiping the one true God. That they turn from ungodly and unjust uh, edicts and mandates and turn to be the government as your word has prescribed in Romans 13. We pray for repentance for all of our leaders who don't know you, that they may turn to you and be saved and their worldview will change. And when their worldview changes, their, their policy making will change to better reflect uh, what scripture uh, has prescribed. We pray that for our federal leaders from the White House down to the State House in Montgomery, down to our city halls and county commissioner offices, that you raise up godly men to help lead our cities, our states, and our nation. Father, thank you for your grace. And as we prepare to preach this morning, from Ezra, the second chapter, I pray that your grace be with me as I preach this message. That you send your spirit to fill me, to be faithful to the text. And that you send your spirit to illuminate your truth to us this morning as we look at lessons from a list. May you be glorified by what is preached and what is heard this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Let us turn to Exodus, the second chapter. Turn my microphone down here. 
Hopefully some of y'all had a chance to read ahead and see that list of uh, names. And you're wondering to yourself, who tried to read those names? <laughs> I said, nah, I'll, I'll pass. Why are we reading this chapter? Why, why preach a sermon on this chapter? Like, what sense does it make? That's what we're here to do this morning. When I first read this list, when I pre preached through Ezra five years ago, I thought the same thing. Why is this list in here? There is a reason. I'm not going to read this whole chapter. I'm just going to read the first few verses. It says here, now these are the people of the province who came back from captivity, of those who had been carried away, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Okay? So we see that. Then you look at the last verse here. The priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities, all Israel in their cities. That's in verse 70. So in between all that, we have a list of people. When you read scripture, you will see that the Bible is full of lists. Bible is full of lists. Uh, the same list that we're looking at today is also found in Nehemiah, the seventh chapter. And when we get to Nehemiah, after we finish uh, the book of Ezra, you will see that there are some differences that we'll look at when we look at that list in, um, in Nehemiah. When you read Matthew, the first chapter, you see a list. You see a a genealogy uh, leading up to the birth of Christ. You have a list of spiritual gifts that Paul gives in uh, particularly uh, 1 Corinthians, the 12th uh, chapter. You have a, a list of genealogies in the book of, of Genesis that led up to the birth of uh, Noah. The Bible is full of lists, and those lists are there for a reason. Lists symbolize a continuation of something. It, 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 it symbolizes continuity, something continuing, something growing, something advancing. That's generally what lists are for. But we must know this about the Bible. You know, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 and 16 that all scripture is by inspiration of God. Not just the parts of scripture that you see on coffee mugs or T-shirts or someone's life verse that they may, you know, wear on a T-shirt or be tattooed on their bodies or you know, special coffee mug or tumbler with Philippians 4 and 13 on it or something 
you know, of that sort. Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, which I said last week was used out of context. But nevertheless, you know, we have those special verses. All of us do. Those are not the only scriptures that are profitable. All scripture is profitable. Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3 and 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So God inspired this list that we're looking at today. With these uh, Hebrew names that we don't understand. Some of them we're familiar with. Like Nehemiah. Uh, but most of them we aren't. But they're in here for a reason. And this list shows Israel's refusal to be robbed of their past and their future. Genealogy was very important to ancient cultures. They always prided themselves in uh, looking back. You know, now we have services like, I think it's Ancestry.com, where you have to actually pay money <laughs> to just think about that concept. You have to pay them money to learn about your family history. It's a pretty nice little enterprise they have going. And it's expensive. It's very expensive. You have 24 and me, uh, these places where you submit your DNA and, 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 and all that stuff, and they trace your ancestry back. You know, you have all those different types of programs. But uh, that shows us that the fact of looking back at ancestry is, is lost uh, on us modern people. But the big idea of this passage, we're going to spend two weeks in this chapter, by the way. Uh, the big idea for this chapter is that God is faithful to his chosen people. He's faithful to his chosen people. Now, looking at this list here is divided into different sections. You look at in your Bible, look at verses uh, 3 through 20. You see list of families. When you see the number of men of or the people of. Those are families that are listed in those first few verses. Then verses 21 through 35 are cities, the men of. They list people from the cities. And then verses 36 through 42, you have the priests and the Levites. You know, the priests were those who went before God. They led uh, worship of God. You know, they offered the sacrifices. And then the Levites were the temple singers. They led the people in singing uh, psalms to God. And then verses 43 through 54, you have the list of the temple Servants, the Nethanim, Nethanim were temple servants. They were kind of like ushers and people who took care of the furnishings of the temple, so to speak. And then verses 55 through 58, you have the sons of Solomon's servants. Okay, these are descendants of Solomon's servants. Why? Because Solomon was the one who, who built the temple. So these were sons of those who served under Solomon's rule. And then the last part of the list, verses 59 through 62, you had the non-verifiable 
Jews. They were those who uh, came up from different nations that were not Jewish. It says in verse 59, they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. Okay, so those people, since they could not know the genealogy, they could not be Levites, so they could not be priests, because the priests had to trace their genealogy back to Aaron. Okay? Uh, and those who were Levites had to trace their lineage back to the Levitical priesthood that was established in the book of uh, Deuteronomy. So, I'm sorry, in the book of Leviticus. So, but these were non-verifiable Jews. They could not trace their heritage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, to the patriarchs. So that is what this list contains. But again, the big idea is that God is faithful to his chosen people. To discipline them for their sins and restore them so that they might live faithfully to his covenant. That's the big idea of this uh, passage. So we're going to look at four principles over all the next two weeks. We're going to look at this first principle here. That God is faithful to his chosen people to discipline them and to restore them. The key word is that God is faithful. Who is God faithful to? First, God is faithful to himself because he is God. His word cannot be broken. But God, in seeing this list, we see that God was faithful to his covenant with Abraham. And what was God's covenant to Abraham? That he was going to make him a great nation. You find this in Genesis 12, the opening verses of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where God told Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God was faithful to make Abraham a great nation. That's what we see in this list. And God was also faithful to his covenant to David to always have a king on his throne. When David prayed to God, God told him in 2 Samuel, the seventh chapter. God told him, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. He's speaking of Solomon, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name because remember it was David who desired to build a temple for the Lord. But God told him that he could not because he was a man of war and that it was for Solomon to build a temple. He says he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he my son. If he commits iniquity, which Solomon did. I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. And that happened through his sons. 
but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed before you and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you your throne shall be established forever so the Lord told David that his throne his kingdom was going to be established forever and that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ remember I always said David was the Christ king he was the type of Christ as king but this list here is showing us that God was faithful to his servant David who was a man after God's own heart Zerubbabel who we see whose name is listed here in verse 2 of Ezra 1 those who came with Zerubbabel Zerubbabel was a descendant of David and he was among the exiles who was in the genealogy of Christ if you look at Matthew 1 verses 11 and 12 you see, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheetiel, and Sheetiel begot Zerubbabel. So this same Zerubbabel that we see in verse 2 here is mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. Again, it goes back to that idea that God is faithful to his covenant to make Israel a great nation and we see that in the preservation of his people that's why we see this list Israel was chosen by God and was a witness to God's faithfulness when you read the wilderness account you see how unfaithful Israel was to God God could have easily said, away with these people. <laughs> I will choose another nation. But he did not do that. The God of the Old Testament is a God of mercy, unlike what the unbelievers say. He was merciful toward Israel. The Bible says here in Deuteronomy 7, verses, beginning at verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor chose, choose you, rather, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of the king Pharaoh rather king of Egypt therefore know that the Lord your God he is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments we see faithfulness in continuing this people we see God's faithfulness and I hope you all see it too 
God's faithfulness to his chosen must be understood. We must understand that God is faithful to his people. We're not faithful, but God is always faithful. Israel was never faithful, but God was always faithful to Israel. Why did they get taken into exile? Because they were not faithful to him. They worshiped idols. The kings led them in worshiping of, of foreign gods. They were not faithful. God sent them to exile for 70 years. But he was faithful to continue his people. If not, they would have died out in Babylon. And there would have never been a great nation that he had promised Abraham. Zerubbabel, who was basically a descendant of Christ, would have never come back to help rebuild the temple to continue temple worship and continue the nation of Israel as we knew it. Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, he spoke of God's faithfulness, that his mercies are renewed every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. And that's one of the great Christian hymns. Great is thy faithfulness. And as I said earlier, ancestry was uh, very important to the Hebrew people. You see this, there's a long uh, genealogy in First Chronicles verses 1 through 9. It gives the families uh, of all the people from Adam all the way down to Abraham. It covers the first nine chapters of First Chronicles. And it gives the genealogy from Adam, Seth, Enoch, Shem, or the, uh, Noah, it talks about Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, the sons of Noah's children. Then it talks of Ishmael, and it goes on and on and on, all the way down to Abraham. So ancestry was very important to these people. So this list here shows that the importance of it in counting how many people came from how many families. So what made them chose? What made these people so special? It was not the Jews' physical birth that made them chosen. It was God's faithfulness and their faith in him. And that is the same case with us. That God is faithful. It's not by physical birth that God is faithful to us. It is because of his faithfulness. It has nothing to do with us. And Paul says this when he talks about um, Jews being heirs and us being heirs. We are heirs by faith in God. But it's because of God's faithfulness that we even have faith in him. It didn't originate with us. Our faith in God didn't originate with us. It originated with him. And because of God's faithfulness, guess what? We're faithful. It is him who causes us to be faithful. God is faithful to disciple his chosen. Remember, 
the exile was God's way of punishing the rebellion of Israel against him. They kept rebelling against God. You saw it in Exodus. You see it in the book of Numbers. You see it in the book of Deuteronomy. You see it in the book of Joshua with Achan's uh, sin. You'll see it especially in the book of Judges where they, uh, a generation came up who didn't know Joshua. And they began to do, everybody began to do what was right in their own sight. You see it in 1 Samuel. You see it in 2 Samuel. You see it in the kings. All the series of evil kings of Israel and all the good and bad kings of, of, of Judah. And God drove them into exile. It was God's way of disciplining the Israelites for their rejection of him. And they were warned so many times. Listen to this right here. This is in uh, Leviticus, the 26th chapter. This is what God said. This was approximately 1445 B.C. Now, remember, the exile happened in 586 B.C. That's when the exile happened, 586 B.C. So this happened almost a thousand years before the exile. And listen to this word from the Lord. And I'll say this as an aside. God always warns us before judgment comes. He warns us through his word. He warns us through the preaching of the gospel. He warns us through uh, loved ones who are in Christ. Look, don't do that. That's going to cause you harm. That's, that's not good for you. That's not going to help you. He warns us. Constantly. If you do this, that will happen. And this is what he does with Israel. This is Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Leviticus rather, 26. They were warned. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven. And they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. In fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And that seven times represented the 70 years of exile. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you, sh you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. And my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. That happened when the temple was destroyed. And I will smell I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation. And your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities laid waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths 
as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. So what did God promise them? That they would be sent away. And then he continues, verse 36. And as for those of you who are left, the remnant, I will send faintness into their hearts and in the hands of their enemies. The sound of a shaking leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword when no one pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, and also their fathers' iniquities, which are with them. They shall waste away. God promised them what would happen if they disobeyed him. And guess what? It happened. And the punishment for their rebellion was exile for 70 years. And when you read 2 Kings 17, uh, this is when Israel was invaded by the Assyrians. And when God told Israel that he was going to scatter them, he was speaking about Israel, the northern tribes, because as I said, the Assyrians had scattered them literally across the face of the known world. They often called the lost tribes of Israel because they had been scattered so much and intermingled so much with the other nations. So you see here in this chapter, and what we're leading up to, of course, is why the exile happened and, 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 and why we have this list here. In King 17, Israel was invaded by the Assyrians. You see in verse 5 here, the king of Assyria, and this is approximately 722 B.C., by the way. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. That's where we get the Samaritans from. That's why Jews did not get along with Samaritans because Samaritans were mixed Jews. They were not pure ethnic Jews because they had mixed with all the other pagan nations. That's why they were Samaritans because their capital was in Samaria. So he went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed him in Halah and by Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. And God had called them to turn to them, but they didn't. Then look down at verse 24. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Avah, Hamath, and Sepharvim 
and placed them in the city. So he repopulated Israel with all these other pagan people. Basically a resettlement of the northern kingdom. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. Of course, at the beginning of their dwelling there, that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. You know, Israel had pleaded with the Lord. But they continued to make gods on their own. They practiced other rituals. And Israel had intermingled with them, unfortunately. And that was the end of the northern kingdom. So we see that Israel was invaded by the Assyrians. And then 2 Kings 25, Judah was invaded by Babylon. It says here in 2 Kings 25 and 1, Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. That means they surrounded the city. And they built a siege wall against it all around. A siege wall was a wall outside of the wall because ancient cities were fortified by walls. So they built the wall outside of the wall. So that means this didn't happen like overnight. You know, it takes a little while to build a wall <laughs> around a city. Okay. So it, it, as I said, when you're reading a script, special Old Testament narrative, everything didn't happen in real time. So they didn't just, boom, wall just popped up like that. Okay. I think they seized Israel for two or three years. But they built a wall around Israel to keep them from going out and to keep people from coming in. Since so the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month of the famine, I'm sorry, rather, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. What did God say in the book of Leviticus? That the men were going to eat each other. They had to resort to cannibalism because all the supply lines were shut off inside of the city. But this was God's judgment on his people. It was part, just part of his chastisement of them. The Babylonians came in and seized the city, kept food and everything from entering in and out. Then the city wall was broken through and all the men of war fled at night by the way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden. Even though the Chaldeans were still encamped against all around the city, the king made his way up the plain. The army of the Chaldeans pursued the king. They overtook the king. All his army was scattered, and they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him, and they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon, in essence, to be a slave. But this was their consequence for hundreds of years of rebellion against God. It did not happen overnight. Hundreds of years, this nation rebelled against God and God was merciful to them and God was gracious to them. And God said, enough. I'm going to chastise you. And so they were invaded. We must know this. Although God is slow in anger, uh, Moses, when he played with uh, God in, uh, I think it's Exodus 34, after, um, you know, the golden calf, God pled to God's, uh, Moses rather, pled to God's mercy, that God is slow in anger. God still disciplines. 
although he's slow in anger. He still disciplines. But he disciplines because he loves. Just like a parent disciplines their child because what? They love that child. And we must understand this about sin. Sin always brings about the discipline of the Lord. Always. Sin has consequences. And often the consequences of sin are lasting. Now, God is gracious in this. When God saves us, our sin record is wiped clean. We're no longer condemned because of our sins. We're no longer guilty of the sins that we've committed. All the sins that we have committed and will commit have already been forgiven in Christ. That is the great doctrine of justification by faith. However, we will still have to deal with the consequences of our sins. We still deal with the consequences. That's how great sin is. God saves us. <laughs> it's like, uh, to use a funny illustration, you know, you, 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 you ruined your credit and everything before you were saved. And, you know, when God saves you, your credit score is not going to automatically be 800. <laughs> you still got to deal with what? The consequences of bad financial decisions and bad credit. It's not like all of a sudden your credit is going to be good. No, you still have to deal with the consequences of that. Other sinful actions that carry consequences will carry on even though God has saved you. Israel had to deal with the consequences of their rejection against God, although God was still faithful to them. They still had to bear the consequences of not obeying him. And this exile was that. So we see this list of people coming back. We see that God is still faithful to them because again he didn't have to promise 70 years he could have promised you're never coming back to this land that you will not be my people anymore but he did not do that again God disciplines us because he loves us uh, Hebrews 12 talks about that in Hebrews 12 verses 4 through 13 that God chastened those whom he loved. God chastened Israel because he set his love on them. He chastens his believers. Why? Because he has set his love on us. And God doesn't chastise us by bringing sin our way. Don't, don't make that mistake. <laughs> but God chastises us by bringing trials our way. Those trials are not meant for us to apostatize our faith. Those trials are meant to discipline us, to sharpen us, to deepen our faith in God. You think about Paul when he wrote in, uh, I think, 2 Corinthians 12 about his thorn in the flesh. The messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him or to humble him. He said that he sought the Lord three times to remove it. But what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. And that my strength is made perfect in weakness. God didn't remove whatever thorn Paul had in his flesh. It was to buffet him. It was to chastise him. It was to keep him humble. Keep him on his knees. Keep him faithful in his apostolic calling. 
It was not meant to cause Paul to say, enough with this. God won't remove this. Well, I won't serve him anymore. No, it was meant to deepen Paul's faith and dependence on God. My grace is sufficient. Paul, my grace is enough. Lean on my grace. So when God chastises us, just as he did Israel, if he doesn't chastise us, then that means we're not his children. That's what it means. The writer in Hebrews says this. This is the way he says in Hebrews 12. He says, in essence, if you're not chastised, then you are not children. He says here, um, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So if you're not chastened by God, then that means you're not one of his sons. I wouldn't chasten someone who's not my child because they're not my child, right? Their parents are, you know, hold your hands over, you know. <laughs> well, you know, these days they'll come to my house and shoot it up, put it on Facebook Live, you know, something like that. Uh, or TikTok, you know, <laughs> make it go viral. But I can't chasten someone's child who's not mine because they're not my child, unless the parent gives me permission. But, you know, just in general il uh, illustrative circumstances, you can't rightfully discipline someone else's child because they're not your child. God only disciplines those whom are his and is ultimately for his glory and for our good. And that's why he did Israel. He chastened them by sending them into exile. And I'll say this, because this is something that some Christians struggle with. I made sure I wrote this down and highlighted it in my notes. God does not discipline us to make us pay for our sins. The worst thing a Christian can say, and you know, you can understand the sentiment, but it is it's unbiblical. Is somehow you're chasing because you did something wrong. Listen to this. God does not discipline us to make us pay for our sins. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He was punished. Rather, God disciplines us that we may share in his holiness. That's Hebrews 12 and 10. For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seen best of them. He's talking about parents. But God for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. God chastises us to make us more holy. To make us more like Christ. He doesn't chastise us to punish us. Christ was punished for us. A Christian should never say I'm being punished. That's substitutionary atonement. Christ was punished for us. We always had to remind ourselves. Isaiah 53. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was ruined for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. Christ was punished for 
our sins. God doesn't punish the believer for their sins. Unbelievers, yes, they are being punished for their sins. Believers, no. Why? Because Christ already took on our punishment. He took on the condemnation. Curse is a man who dies on a tree. Christ was cursed. He bore the curse of sin, the condemnation of sin, the shame of sin. Christ already bore that for us. So why should we have a pity party and say, God must be punishing me? It sounds very pious, but it is so unbiblical. It comes from bad Bible teaching, I think, and, and, and hearing other people say it. God must be punishing me. Yeah, if you're an unbeliever, you can say that. <laughs> yes, he is punishing you because already under condemnation, already under the wrath of God. But for us as believers, praise the Lord. God is faithful. He doesn't make us pay for our sins. Christ already paid that. The goal of discipline is restoration, not punishment. It's restoration. The last point under this principle is that God is faithful to restore his chosen people. So God is faithful to his chosen people as he was to Israel. He made that covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the fathers to make them a what? Great nation. But Israel didn't live up to that over hundreds of years. So God disciplined them. God disciplined Solomon. God had warned Solomon when you read the account in 1 Kings. 1 Kings 11 chronicles where uh, Solomon uh, had, had fallen, where he, you know, say he had, married, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. But earlier in that book, God had warned Solomon three times to not marry foreign women. But he did it anyway. And God chastised him through his son. God chastised David. His son Absalom. Absalom led a rebellion against his own father and set himself up to be king. <laughs> Surely did. God faithfully disciplines even when we fall. But not only does God discipline, remember, discipline is what? It's for restoration. So God is faithful to restore his chosen people. God restores after chastening. He does not leave his children without hope. When God chastens us, brings trials our way, friends, the goal of that is restoration. Don't take it again as, as, as being punished. Because punishment is punitive. It's, it's, it's not for restoration. Anything that's punitive is not restorative. Punitive is where we get, you know, punishment from. God restores his chosen after chasing them. He didn't leave them without hope. Why? Because the exiles returned. They returned. And the thing is, God in his sovereignty did not allow 
the Jewish nation to perish in Babylon. That wasn't some mere coincidence, by the way. God did not cause his people to perish in Babylon. He said this to them in, uh, what is it, Leviticus 26 chapter verses 40 through 45. This is continuing what I read earlier. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me. And remember, this is God prophesying. This is God speaking. This is 1445 B.C. God saying that if you disobey me, you're going to be scattered. You're going to be sent off to another nation. But if you confess your iniquity and the iniquity of your fathers who had sinned before them, who led them to exile with their unfaithfulness, in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt. You know one of the ones who did that? The book of Daniel. Daniel was during the uh, exile. Daniel was one of the faithful ones. Him and his uh, three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were faithful in exile. Daniel had prayed after the 70 years were over. In Daniel, the ninth chapter, he knew that those 70 years were over and, and, and for ex, uh, Israel to come back. He prayed on behalf of the whole nation. And perhaps there were other Babylon too. So what did God say we're doing? Verse 42. I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. The land shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, when they're in Babylon, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. Look how faithful God is. God said, when you pray to me, when you repent, when you humble yourself in the land of your enemies, I will not cast you away. Why? For I am the Lord their God. God never ceased being their Lord, although he chastised them. When God is chastising you, saint, it doesn't mean that he ceases being your God. You're not separated from him. He's still with you. Does a parent stop being the child's parent just because they chastise them? Of course not. That's foolish. So why do we think the same way about God, that somehow God doesn't love me because he's chastising me? No. God told Israel, you repent. You turn to me. I will turn back to you. I will remember my covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that I will make you a great nation. That he will not utterly destroy them and break their covenant. He says, but for their sake, verse 45, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. 
in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. I am Jehovah God. I am the Almighty. God is not only faithful to discipline, he's faithful to restore. Think about Psalm 23 and 3. He restores my soul. He is the restorer. He does not cast us off forever. Let that marinate in your mind. God does not cast us off forever. We should never think that the Lord forgets about us. Jeremiah said in the book of Lamentations 3, verse 27, It is good for a man to bear the yoke of his youth. Bear the yoke means to endure chastening. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. In other words, when God chastens you, take it. Don't resist it. Don't fight against it. But this is why he says do that. Verse 31, for, for means because. The Lord will not cast off forever. Listen to this, it's so encouraging. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. God doesn't afflict us with joy. He's not some sadist who likes inflicting pain on his children. Though he causes grief, he will show compassion. He will not cast us off forever. And Jeremiah was speaking of this, of course, before the exile. This list demonstrates God's faithfulness to restore the Jewish nation. Again, if you look at verse 2 of Exodus 2, I'm sorry, Ezra 2. You see the name Zerubbabel again, right? We saw him in Matthew, the very first chapter. Look at Matthew 1 13. It's in there. You see the names of these people. Again, Zerubbabel begat Abweed, and Abweed begat Eliakim. And Eliakim begot Azor. So you see Zerubbabel is among those names. That's showing God's faithfulness to restore these people. Look at verse 41 of Ezra 2. You see the singers, the sons of Asaph. There's 128 of them. 
if you look at Psalm 50 and Psalm 73 through 83, you know, we've done those in our responsive reading. You'll see at the heading, the sons of Asaph. Those psalms were written by these same ones that are mentioned in verse 41. Psalm 50 and Psalm 73 through 83 are the songs of Asaph. Those were songs that they wrote for Israel to sing. This shows God's faithfulness to restore. Had he not done that, we wouldn't have those psalms. Just as to close this principle right here. You know, suffering and the consequence of our sin does remain. God, again, does not wipe out the consequences of our sins. Even when he restores us, he still doesn't wipe them away. You know, the Jews, those exiles that came back, they didn't come back to a rebuilt temple. They came back to rubble. They came back to torn down walls, torn down homes. They came to a temple that was destroyed. Where one rock was sitting on top of the other. The city had been sieged. That's what they came back to. When Christ saves us, we're redeemed and restored. But God does give us his grace as a means to endure the consequences uh, for his glory. God does give us grace to endure those consequences of our sins that we have to face. And he's giving Israel the same grace. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We're just starting scratching the surface of your work of redemption in this chapter. I, I thank you, Lord, that we see through scripture. We see providentially with uh, our ministry, your faithfulness to us, your faithfulness to your people, your faithfulness to your covenant. And Lord, you're faithful to us as a church. You're faithful to us as a people. You have redeemed us for your glory. You chasing us because you love us. Lord, help us to know that for believers, you don't punish us. Christ was punished. You don't condemn us. Christ was condemned. Lord, as we read and work through this chapter and other messages, Lord, help us to see you with right eyes, that you're faithful to your chosen people, that you're faithful to restore us, those of us who long for spiritual restoration. Lord, you did it through salvation. May we use the means that you gave us. Through scripture reading, through prayer, through fellowship with the saints, to practicing the sacraments. The ordinary means of grace that you've given us, Lord, to live this life as believers. Lord, since you are faithful to us, help us to be faithful to you. Thank you for your faithfulness to Israel and to us. In Christ's name, amen.